The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Gracious God in heaven has blessed us with this opportunity of coming together to worship God in spirit and in truth, to meditate upon a part of His revealed will for our lives, and Your presence blesses this service tonight. And we do not take that for granted, but we are most appreciative. Do you really believe that in God's great plan for mankind, He has you in mind? that you can potentially be a vital part of something that Almighty God purposed and planned centuries ago? Do you believe that you are so burdened by your past that it's really impossible for you to be a part of God's plan? There was a man one time who had an unfortunate past, and that's being gracious to it. He was a man who hated the Church of Christ with a passion. And he really thought that the greatest service that he could render to God would be destroy that church. And he tried to do it. Later on, when he himself had become a vital part of the body of Christ, he reflected with certain amount of remorse. And he said in Acts 26, beginning with verse 9, I I verily thought with myself, I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he starts talking about things that he had done. He said uh, that when some of the people were killed, he gave his consent. He said he compelled some of them to blaspheme. He, He threw them in prison. He had an unfortunate past. And yet he had to forget the things which were behind and reach forth to the things which are before because the Lord had changed his life for good. And he commenced, as he said to the brethren in Galatia, he commenced to preach the faith that he had once destroyed. Do you believe that there are certain liabilities that you have, maybe limited formal education, maybe limited financial resources, limited social standing, limited political prominence, whatever? Do you personally in your heart believe that you cannot be a part of God's great plan for mankind? Well, if so, I've got some good news for you tonight. We all can be a part of that great plan of God for mankind. I want to take you to the great book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, we're going to Romans chapter 8. This is one of the great chapters in the Bible. The book of Romans is like being up in a chain of mountains, and sometimes you run into a peak in those mountains like chapter 8. When he lays out all of these reasons to become children of God, works his way on down to start in verse 28 by saying, For we know that all things work together for good to those that love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, them he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not through him freely give us all things? Who shall lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore also is risen, and who is now at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Now in all of these things, we're more than conquerors, he goes on to say through him that loved us. More than conquerors. And there you have it. We're going to look first of all at the declaration of God's great purpose or plan. And then in the second place, we will look at an explanation which becomes an elaboration on that plan. And then finally, we'll just call your attention to something we've just read, motivation, so much motivation that will prompt us to let the Lord make us a part of that great plan that he had for mankind for centuries. Now the declaration. It's very important for us to see how all of this relates to the Son of God. In fact, the last verse of Romans 8, if you will note, talks about the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, his Son. This chapter begins by talking about the importance of the relationship that people must have with Jesus Christ. He said, there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, while that little preposition is so very short, it is powerful. If I'm going to be a part of God's great plan, it is imperative that I have the right relationship with God's Son, identified as being in Him. Now, when you and I are consistent with God's great plan, then we can know that He foreknew that there would come a time when He would justify people who otherwise would be under condemnation. That's what He said in verse 1, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, those that are not in Christ Jesus are under condemnation. It's not a matter of people maybe being lost in the day of judgment. It's a terrible matter of people already being lost and only separated from eternal destruction by one automobile accident, one heart attack, one stroke, one cerebral hemorrhage, because it's for sure as we live, we shall die. And as we die, God will find us in judgment and as he finds us in judgment, so shall we be eternally. So the acute need is for justification. And in order to be justified, we must answer God's call. You see, this whole thing begins with God calling people. Uh, we know all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called. Now that poses this interesting question. How does God call us? How does God call us so we may be justified? Is it some type of mysterious, direct, inexplicable inexplic call from heaven? Or is it 
outlined in the Word of God relative to the means by which He calls us. I want to submit to you a passage of Holy Scripture found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I remind you that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle is talking about an apostasy that's going to come on the first century church. And the development of false religion epitomized in what he identified as a man of sin. And then he explained why all of that will happen. He said, and with all deceit of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not a love of the truth that they might be saved and for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they all might believe a lie, that they all might be damned or condemned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is why the apostasy, Paul said, is going to occur. People will stop loving the truth. But now look at the contrast in verses 13 and 14. He said, but we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. This is what we're talking about. God's great plan, God's great purpose. God hath from the, the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody have any trouble now understanding how God calls us? He calls us by the gospel, which Paul had affirmed in Romans 1.16 is the very power of God to bring about salvation, which practically means this. If there is the realization in your mind that you need to become a child of God, that Satan has captivated your heart and controlled your life and your destiny long enough. That the devil does not love you, he hates you. He's jealous and envious of people from the dawn of time. He's been trying to demonstrate down through the centuries that God made a terrible mistake creating people in his own image and after his likeness. And he has tried to demonstrate through the years that people will not honor the God who made them, that they rather will listen to Satan, the adversary, the devil, the slanderer, the God of this age, the enemy of both God and man. This has been his effort all down through the stream of time. Well, if you have come to the realization you've had enough of that, the devil no longer should be destroying your life on this earth and potentially destroying your soul in hell. And so you want to turn from that. You know why that realization is there? The gospel has been getting into your heart. This good news about the love of God for you and the potential of salvation through Jesus Christ, it's been getting into your mind. It's been getting into your thought processes. Now, if in addition to that realization, there's an inclination within your heart to respond to the call of the gospel. You see, God calls us by the gospel. If there's the inclination for you to come to Jesus Christ full of trust in Him, willing to obey Him from your heart, God's calling you. This is the way God calls. He calls us by the gospel. Now, He calls us to justify us. And in response to the commands of the gospel, we can rest assured God is going to justify us. He is going to pronounce us pardoned of all of our sins. Justification is an act of Almighty God. And the opposite of justification is obviously condemnation. So God calls us by the gospel to be justified. Now, for God to justify us, we're dealing with a very complex situation. How can God do that? 
How can God say about our sins, I'm going to treat them as if you had never committed them and not wreck the whole moral universe? Well, this was God's challenge. And it's explained, at least the solution to the problem is explained back in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 23, when Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being therefore justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. So here was God's solution to the dilemma. All right, here are sinful people. They are under condemnation. I love them. I don't want them to be eternally lost. But how will I justify them? How will I pronounce them pardoned without in essence at least implying that sin is not the human tragedy? The solution, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The solution is the death of the innocent, loving lamb of God. And so, when Jesus went out to Golgotha after being brutalized through a scourging, and when they nailed the nails through his hands and his feet, and lifted him up between heaven and earth to bleed and die for the sin of mankind, so God accepts that as an adequate payment for human sinfulness. And now we potentially are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5 and verse 9. Being therefore justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I just remind us that justification is not all that simple. Justification is extremely demanding. Demanding of God. But his son solved the dilemma for heaven and for earth. And you and I are eternally indebted to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So God declares his plan. I have a purpose. My purpose is to justify people. I call them to that justification. And when I justify them, then I glorify them. We are glorified. We are honored to be justified by Almighty God, to have our sins pardoned to have God treat them as if we had never committed them. For God to say under this new covenant, Hebrews 8 and 12, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And surely within many a human heart, there's a longing that was expressed by the poet who said, I wish there were some beautiful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. We all know there's no such utopian land, but I promise you there is a man of beginning again, and that man is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who paid the debt. We sing it, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it, white as snow. Now from the declaration, let's go to the explanation. Whom God foreknew, he predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. I need to ask you a question here. 
Is Jesus ever identified as the last Adam or the second Adam? You say, well, certainly. I read 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The first Adam was made a living soul. The second Adam was made a life-giving spirit. What do you mean the second Adam? Someone said when Jesus was here on earth, he was man's idea of God. That must be true because when Philip said, show us the Father and it sufficeth, Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you and you say, show us the Father? He that has seen me has seen the Father. If you really want to know what God is like, read the life of Christ and see a manifestation of God's true nature. But in response to that observation that while Jesus was here, he was man's idea of God, someone said, well, he was also God's ideal of man. And that is so true. What did God have in mind when he created Adam before sin came to mar his creation? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God had in mind. Now, when you and I identify with him, when we conform to his image, when we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, what's happening? God's creation is being put back together. You'll find in scripture statements like Galatians 4.19 when Paul said, my little children for whom I labor in childbirth until Christ be formed in you. And when he was talking in Ephesians 4 about Jesus ascending up on high and giving gifts unto men, he said he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm going to tell you the most humbling thing that's happened in my life in 59 years of preaching, at least up to this point. Many years ago, I was preaching for a congregation in West Tennessee by Sunday appointment. I was teaching at Freed Hardeman. And one Sunday, one of our young mothers was ill and not able to come to the worship service. So after service on Sunday night, I went over to the house to visit her. She and her husband had a little boy. He, at the time, was about three and a half, four years old. The next Sunday, his grandmother said to me, do you know who Lee said came to see his mother last night? I said, who? He said, Jesus did. Up to this point, that's the most humbling experience of my life. Now the aspiration is to be like Jesus. I, I know the ideal, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We sing a lot of songs about this. One is the song, Oh to be like thee. I'm sure you've led that song, Oh to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. That's the ideal for all of us to become like the Son of God, to conform, that is literally, be formed in His image. So I keep asking myself, in what ways am I like the Lord Jesus Christ? In what ways am I unlike the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I want to give attention to those ways that I'm not like Him. I want to reflect Him. There are a lot of people today who are too busy to read the Bible, 
but they're not too busy to read us. The people in the office where you work, they read you. The people at school, they read you. Uh, when you're involved in athletics, they, they read you. If you claim to be a Christian, wherever you go, whatever you do, somebody's reading you. Like the poet said, you write a gospel, a chapter each day, but the deeds you do and the words you say, men will read what you write, however faithless or, or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Look at God's great plan now. It's a, it's a marvelous thing. I am going to have a plan whereby people will conform to the image of my son, who is my ideal of man. And as surely as you and I are conforming to the image of God's son, becoming like Jesus Christ, following in his footsteps, so God's creation that was marred by sin after he had created people in the beginning, what's happening? That creation is being put back together. And when Jesus comes and when our bodies are going to be fashioned like his glorious body and we're ushered into the eternal presence of God and when Satan, the enemy, has been cast into the bottomless pit never again to deceive people and when sorrow and sin shall have become nothing but memories, when we're in a beautiful land where we never grow old and God wipes away all tears, there will be joy and abundance. There will be love and adequate supply. Every longing of the human soul will have been fully and completely satisfied and it will never, ever end. And when all of this happens, when you and I are given bodies like the Lord's glorious body and, and ushered into glory, God's creation will have been put back together forever. You see, God had a great plan, and you and I can be a part of it. And if you are a part of it, God bless you, and never lose sight of the objective, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ formed in you. And as he would say to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1:27, Christ in you the hope of glory. As necessary as it is for me to be in Christ, it's imperative that Christ be in me, that I aspire to become like the Son of God as much as a human could possibly reflect that great life. Now we're down to the motivation. We've already seen the declaration of God's plan. It had a great purpose. And that purpose was to call people through the gospel to a justification. And a justification that would bring them a type of glory, a, a tremendous honor. To call them to become like his son. To conform to the image of his son. Now all we need is the motivation. What will move us? I mean, what will move us in our very souls? To want to become like Christ to want to be a part of God's great plan. Well, I submit to you one thing that we read a few moments ago from Romans chapter eight is appreciation for the goodness of God, for God being so gracious and so considerate and so loving and so kind that when we were sinners, 
living in rebellion against him, instead of God just writing us off, he let his son come to die for us, to pay the price for our sins, that we might be justified by Almighty God. How does that strike your heart? I know we live in a day when a lot of people don't seem to have much place for gratitude in their hearts. A lot of selfishness, a lot of envy, a lot of malice, a lot of things in hearts. But you think about it as I think about it. And I think, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. I think, Father, you had to love me a lot. I mean, you had to love me so much to let your son endure what he experienced at Golgotha. I am sure that when my Savior was suffering out there in that mob, I mean, in in human pain, that human language would be in poverty to adequately describe. And when in that crucial moment he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I wouldn't be at all surprised if God was not having to really in a sense, struggle to hold back the armies of the angels that otherwise would have sent them immediately to this earth to have rescued his son from all that shame and all that suffering. And when the old prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 said about all of this, he is smitten of God and afflicted. Incredible. How could you possibly lay at the feet of God Almighty, a loving God, this kind of charge that he is smiting his son out there at Golgotha, afflicting his son out at Golgotha? God let it happen. God let it happen. Why? God so loved the world. This is the love of God. That's commended to us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. That's Romans 5, starting in verse 6. And then you know John 3, 16. Here's something else to move us in our hearts to become a part of God's great plan. And that is appreciation for Christ dying for us. He died for you and he died for me. Sometimes I meet people who have given, say, a kidney to someone, a bodily organ with which they can part and still live. And to me, that's a marvelous thing. I know a preacher whose wife gave their daughter a kidney, and I've told them more than once how how I'm impressed, how grateful I am for that. But my Lord gave himself submitted to a horrible death for you and for me. Breathes there a soul so dead that it does not respond with profound gratitude for a Savior who would die for you? But there's something else to motivate us. And please don't lose sight of this one. Remember what Paul said that he is now by the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Remember that line from Romans chapter 8? You know, one of the great blessings I have as a child of God is to have someone in heaven who makes intercession for me. 
who, if you please, can plead my cause before the throne of Almighty God. And who knows my cause? Because he's been here. Jesus didn't come to earth as an Eastern guru to sit upon a high mountain dispensing great philosophy of life. He came into the arena of life. He came where sin was devastating people, dashing dreams, destroying hopes. He came into the midst of suffering of every kind. And his compassionate heart was so stirred that when blind Bartimaeus down at, near Jericho heard that Jesus was passing that way and commenced to cry out, Jesus, have mercy upon me. And the Lord stopped and said, what do you want? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Oh, you're an old blind fellow. Nobody has time for you. Jesus had time for him. And he gave him his sight. It may be Jairus, little 12-year-old girl, sick to the point of death. And by the time Jesus arrived, he had the news. She's already dead. Little 12-year-old girl, who has time for a little 12 I mean, the Lord, he's got a great ministry here. Surely he doesn't have time for a little 12-year-old girl. Ah, but yes, he did. And he raised that little girl from the dead. I had a little 12-year-old girl one time. She's grown now. In fact, and then I had another little 12-year-old girl. And they were very important to me, I promise you. When my baby girl was about 13, she was having to have some surgery. And uh, I went back to the door of the operating room, and they told me I couldn't come in. I mean, I was going with that little girl as far as I could. And when they stopped me and said, you, you cannot come in here, I said, well, you make me a promise. You take care of that little girl because she's very important to me. And they said, we'll take care of her. And I trusted them to do that, and they did. I'm just telling you, if I'd been Jairus and Jesus had come because he had a concern for my little 12-year-old girl, I would have appreciated that. My Lord has been on this earth Tempted in all points like we are. The scripture assures us, Hebrews chapter 4, 15, 16. And he is now by God's right hand making intercession for us. You know, one of the beautiful things about Jesus among many is stated in Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory. What? My Lord Jesus Christ came from glory to take me to glory. And he can do that. I mean, he's already paid the price for my sins in his own death. And now... He is there by the right hand of God as my intercessor. He can plead my cause before Almighty God. And he can plead with the Father to accept his blood as an adequate payment for my sins. And I'm assured in 1 John 1, 7, if I walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son keeps on cleansing me from sin. Ah, motivation. And let me say as humbly and as kindly as I know how, if you don't have Jesus in heaven interceding for you, you are cheating yourself out of one, if not the greatest potential blessing that any human being could ever possibly imagine.
There's one other thing that can motivate us. Go back to verse 28 now. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. That all things, what? That everything that happens to you is for your good? No, because there are a lot of things the devil brings upon us that are not good. There's a lot of pain and suffering the devil inflicts upon people, and that is not good. But God can even take the hurts and the disappointments and the pain of life and work it for good. When the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 was talking about the great hope that we have as God's people that's incorruptible and undefiled, that's never going to fade away and it's reserved in heaven for us. He said in verse 5, he said, you're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice. But watch the next line. Though now, if need be for a season, you are in heaviness through manifold trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, we rejoice because our names are written in heaven. We rejoice because we have hope after this life to get to go and be with the Lord. But what about the pain and the hurt and the disappointment in this life? What about the limitations of the aging process? I understand that a man in South Georgia wrote that song we sang a few moments ago. When I was a kid, I sang that song. I didn't know what it meant. I'm learning what that means now. In a land where we never grow old. As surely as I stay on this earth, I'm going to get much older. My grandkids think I'm already there, but I'm going to get much. I want to be an old, old person, sure enough. I'd like to stay around for a while. But I'll tell you, when you live here, a lot of things happen that'll break your heart. A lot of things happen that'll trouble your spirit. But God can work everything in his own good way and his own good time. He can work it for good. If that's not a motivation to want to be a part of God's plan, just to know that you have an almighty God who can work everything for your good, what's it going to take? If gratitude for the grace and mercy of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the possibility of having a heavenly representative and having an almighty God who can work all things for your good, if that doesn't move you in your soul to want to become a part of God's plan, and if you're already identified with that plan, if it doesn't make you rejoice that you are a part of God's great plan for mankind, what will it take? So one thing is left. How can you know when you're part of God's plan? You know it when you have the right relationship with Christ. You know it when you're in Him. That's where there's no condemnation. That's where we can be assured of the never failing love of God. The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 and 39. If I read to you from the Bible how you get into Christ, is that fair to you and to the Word of God? Turn over, if you will, to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Just listen to the Lord explain through his word how we get into his son. The apostle said, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Anybody have any problem now understanding how you get into Christ? 
If I'm baptized into him, that's the way I get in him, right? Have you ever been baptized into him? Have you ever been baptized because the Bible teaches you to be baptized, to get into Christ? If not, this is your night. You're at the right place. You're the right person. You have the opportunity and you have the encouragement. Brother or sister, was there a moment in your life when you knew in your heart of hearts that you were now a part of God's great plan? And yet the old world with its offerings kept bombarding your mind and deceiving your heart until you gave up your dedication to Jesus Christ. Well, this is the time to come back to your first love. Come back and renew that determination. I will live for the Lord who loved me enough to die for me. I will identify with the great plan of a gracious God. It'll be to my honor and to eternal glory. You know, we sing a song not as a tradition. We sing it as an exhortation from our hearts and voices to try to encourage anyone who's not a part of God's great plan for man to let the Lord make you a part of it tonight. Answer the call, receive the justification, and you have the honor. We'll sing to encourage you.